y'all. Welcome back to another episode of Well-Lit Path. In Psalm 33, we will find praise for God, His glory, and His power, and how our lives should be filled with joy because of those things. But first, how was your week? You know, we should always be on the lookout as Christians to better ourselves in our relationship with God. Uh, I know too often I consider improving my Christian walk in the things that I can do. Uh, Read my Bible more, pray more, uh, do more church things. And thinking this way, I, I really all too often forget that God doesn't just get glory in the things that I do. God gets glory in how I think how I respond to his holiness. Uh, Am I in awe of God? Is he a part of my life, or do I see myself correctly as a part of his plan? I really know that I need to make God more a part of my life when in reality, I need to align myself and make myself a useful part of his plan. To do that, I need to maintain a clear picture of who he is and how I fit into that plan. How I see myself should be in the light of who he is, not who I am in him. Here in Psalm 33, the author gives us a clear picture of how we should respond to God's greatness, what our role is in his universe, and how we need to view ourselves through the eyes of our Creator. Psalm 33, beginning in verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, for praise is comely for the upright. Praise the Lord with the harp. Sing unto him with the psaltery and an instrument of ten strings. Sing unto him a new song. Play skillfully with a loud noise. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. He loveth righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathereth the waters of the sea together as in heap. He layeth up the depth in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. He maketh the devices of the people to none effect. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. The Lord looketh from heaven, he beholdeth all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation, he looketh upon all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashioneth their hearts alike. He considereth all their works. There is no king saved by the multitude of a host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. A horse is a vain thing for safety. Neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him upon them that hope in his mercy, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in the famine. Our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. 
Let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us according as we hope in thee. Rejoice. To shout aloud for joy. That the joy we find in being a redeemed child of God cannot be contained or expressed by a simple smile or a hand lifted in praise. That the joy overwhelms our minds and finds vocalization from our lips that we have to shout aloud with overflowing joy. This is the joyful cry only the righteous can utter. We, being created despite God knowing that we would fall. We fallen. Knowing that we would not all accept Christ, he still sent his son to die for the sins of all mankind, his sacrifice sufficient to cover all sin, efficient in covering the sins of those who would repent. Yet he didn't send his son to only pay for the sins of those who would accept, but to pay for the sins of all. His redemption even applied to the sin of those in the previous 4,000 years who had not accepted him or believed in him. That is what his payment did at the cross. He died for all sin throughout all time. Knowing that a smaller percentage of the population would accept the substitutionary payment than would reject it, he died for all of our sin anyway. Knowing that some had already made and died in their decision, yet he paid for their sin too, even though they would never know the benefit of his payment. His redemptive work would not have been sufficient if it hadn't covered all of sin. And we're made beneficiaries of this sacrifice when we believe that he's the Son of God. His blood becomes the payment for our debt immediately. His righteousness becomes our righteousness, never to be blemished again, never to be forfeited. And who else but the redeemed, those who have been made righteous, know how to adequately express the joy we've found in his salvation and his blessing. And when we rejoice, when we give voice to our joy, it looks good on us. Others take note. Fellow saints are emboldened by how the joy of salvation looks on each other. We're encouraged. We need to see the joy of God all over each other, and we need to cultivate it, promote it, and be sensitive to a lack of it. Do we notice when joy seems to be missing from the face of a brother or sister in Christ? Do we reach out with joy on our face and offer a hug, a handshake, a good to see you today? Do we ensure that the joy we feel in Christ is always visible to those around us? Does it make the gospel look attractive to people? You know, too often I get caught up in work and worry of my life. I don't know that the joy I feel in God saving me, redeeming me, pulling me back from an eternal death, that it shows in my face, in my demeanor, or my interactions with others all the time. Is being cut off by a turning car or someone driving slow in the fast lane really so impactful to the joy that I should feel 
that I allow it to affect my emotional state that I feel I need to blurt out, yep, go right ahead, moron. You just drive wherever and however you want. But is that is that how I show joy? Is that what others see instead of the joy I have that I, that I feel? The joy that I feel every time I see a hawk swoop down and, and snatch prey from a field? Not that I get joy out of the death of the prey, but joy in being able to see how God's design works so perfectly that the hawk is majestic and that the order God set in the universe is good and makes sense. Do I let the kind of joy I feel in watching my grandson laugh or play permeate every facet of my life because that's the kind of joy I should feel because I'm redeemed, set free? That kind of joy looks good on me. I've heard people say it. They notice it. Do they notice the same or greater joy when I'm in church, when I'm at work, when I'm with my wife? We have to show something that people would desire. If we only ever complain and trudge through life, it's not going to look good on us. It won't reflect God's glory in our lives. And how can we rejoice and praise him well? With whatever instrument of praise we have available. Here in the psalm, it's a musical setting, but we can use other tools to praise him. What has he given us? Our voice? Raise it loud for the Lord. Our skill at electrical work? Do it well for him. Give him the glory for your skill and do an exceptional job at it. So that others stand back and say, wow, there's just something different about a work that that person does. Our skill at parenting? I know it can be frustrating and we may not feel very skilled sometimes as a parent. I know there are times that I haven't felt skilled as a parent and times that I still don't feel skilled as a parent. But God has given us our kids because no one else can give them what each one of us can as their parent. Our children didn't just happen to be born to us. God has entrusted us with them to teach them, to disciple them, to guide them. God has equipped you and me with the exact level of skill we need to be our child's parent. Are we praising him in the task? Well, maybe there's a new role or a new season in your life that you've just fallen into that's just started for you. It's a new song, but the words should be the same. I will praise you. So we should attack this new role, this new season, with even more skill and veracity than any that we've had previously. And I get it. We don't like new things. I can even say that at times we don't even like new songs. But the Lord says to sing a new song loudly to play it skillfully. Even this psalm, as old as it is, was once a new song. As God moves his people to praise and worship him, we will write and compose new music and lyrics with which to worship him. God's God's not limited by the praise he will receive to the words and lyrics by Fanny J. Crosby. 
Those same words of praise can be reflected in songs penned by Nick Dyken, a young songwriter in our church. God will get glory when the words are true and biblical. And then on a life level, God will get glory when we praise him in the new roles and seasons of our lives. He's equipped us with what we need to enter into these times skillfully. And where we struggle, praise God, he's our strength. Where our skill may fall short, he equips us for excellence. Hasn't he promised us that much? Does he not have plans to prosper us? Does he not have good things for his children? Did Christ not come to give us life and that more abundantly? When speaking of how good the Father is to us, Jesus tells us in Luke 11 that would we give bad things to our kids? Is that part of our nature as good parents? Then he acknowledges that we have a sin nature and we can still do good things like that. And he goes on to tell us in verse 13 of that chapter, if ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? The Lord's word is right. It has no evil in it. He's given us the Holy Spirit so that we can discern between the things that are good and the things that are true. His word is true. It's, it's devoid of falsehood. If he's promised something, God will deliver on it. He loves righteousness and judgment because he is a righteous judge. And because of his own righteousness, he's unable to hold himself to any other standard than the one that he sets. But he can hold true to his standards because he is righteousness itself. He's truth itself. He's love itself. And he is all those things and many more simultaneously and perfectly. We look around and we can behold the evidence of his goodness everywhere. When we view a sunset or a sunrise, when we sit and look out at a rainy day, even when the heat blisters and the snow drifts, we see his goodness in these things. The beauty of this world is everything good in God, and the extremes of this world are evidence of the judgment of God. Sin isn't without consequence. And as we look at the extremes of high heat indexes and freezing temperatures at earthquakes and hurricanes and typhoons, what we should see is the extremes and the devastation is in the extremes and devastations is a just and righteous God who said that sin would have an effect on our world, but who has also promised that one day he'll redeem it all. You know, I find it easy to see God in a sunset. But like most of us, I think, I struggle to see his design and grandeur in an earthquake uh, that shatters communities and claims lives. But his goodness is reflected in those moments as well. Because we wouldn't know that those things are wrong, that they're unnatural, and that they're bad if we didn't know the goodness of God. 
These things, when they happen, should allow us to recognize that we needed redemption and that God provided a way for us to be free from the eternal consequences of sin, even if we can't be free from their consequences in this mortal life. These are the heavens that he breathed into existence. These are the waters that he gathered together with the word and contains by his might and power. When he had completed them, they were good and they perfectly reflected his goodness. But with sin, they were corrupted and they became less than good. They became progressively worse until now they so often reflect his goodness in their lack to measure up to such. And it's exactly for this reason that we should fear or have a reverent respect for and stand in awe of a creator who conformed these things and executed a plan to redeem us and to make these things new one day. This is the God who spake and it was simply done. We can't touch that power. Most of us, we can't even speak to our kids most of the time and say that it was immediately done. But when God speaks, the earth responds without hesitation. Matter forms from nothing. And while sin may change the face of creation and the composition of mankind as it has ingrained itself in the DNA of all things, his creation will stand until he concludes it is his time to renew all things. And this tells me that we're never going to be able to destroy his creation. That's not to say we shouldn't be good stewards of his creation. I, I do believe we are unable to destroy what he has made on a global scale. His counsel and promise to sustain his creation is the only truth we should hold on to. In his promises, he brings the recommendations, the counsel of those who do not trust in him to nothing. Their words are as if they've never been spoken. And while mankind may try to show us scientific evidence for some kind of catastrophic world-ending event, there's only one way this world ends. We have the proof text. We know the end of the story. And God alone can make the devices or the plans, the machinations of those who think they have it all figured out to none effect. God can make all of the programs and climate change mitigations completely ineffectual if it has no place in his plan. Only the hubris of humanity could ever think that we would be able to annihilate something that God has created. The psalm goes on to say that his counsel, his plan, is the only plan that was laid before man was ever created, before the light, before the earth was ever spoken into existence. His plan was before, it is, and it will ever be. His plan hasn't changed. It hasn't wavered. He's never rethought the plan because it was perfect from the beginning and in this perfect plan, this thing he wanted for all of us to partake in, he has extended it to every generation. He's offered an opportunity for all to be a part of it, to see the end of it. Salvation and redemption has been offered to all from the fall forward because he knew it would happen and had planned for its inevitability. Not inevitable because it was his will that it happened, but inevitable so his will could be worked out 
in the lives of all who decided to be obedient to him. As Adam and Eve had to be obedient after the fall in their belief that God could redeem them, so Abraham was obedient in his belief to follow God. No different is our obedience to believe that Christ died for us specifically and to trust in the power of his might. And from the time that people began to call on God to now, blessed have been the people whose God is the only God, the most high God, Jehovah, the self-existing one, El Elohim. Blessed are the people he has chosen for his inheritance. And who specifically has he chosen for his inheritance? Well, first it was the people of Israel who would have originally sung this psalm, but now it can be the song of all the redeemed who are chosen by the grafting into his children, who through adoption have become part of his chosen people. Through the blood of Christ, we're recipients of a new inheritance. Where once all we stood to inherit was sorrow and the penalty of sin in our lives, through the adoption of the saints, we are now co-inheritors of the promises of God with Christ. Ours is the name written in glory. Ours are the names graven on the hands of the one who gave himself for us. Even today, as the Lord looks and views mankind, he looks and he beholds us. He studies us. He marks how we behave, what we have become. And while he would be justified in saying that he was done with us, through his perfect long-suffering, he stays his hand of judgment and gives those who do not yet know him one more day to answer his call to salvation. He gives those that do know him one more day to share his gospel with one who does not yet know it. And when he looks, he doesn't just look. He studies closely. He continues his plan. He sets in motion how he will use us and move those that don't know him to intersect with us and thereby intersect with the gospel. And he does this repeatedly. He's diligent in the opportunities he presents to both share and receive the truth of his gospel. Because he has, after all, fashioned all of our hearts alike in that we all seek to fulfill, to fill up this hole in our lives that can only be filled by him. He designed us to yearn to be complete in him, to be defined by him. Now, the world gets confused by sin and the wretchedness of our own heart and that we seek to redefine the good we yearn for in knowing God by replacing it with things that are sinful. It's sin that corrupts our concept of good to where we believe that what we want is called good, that what makes us feel good is what is good. But this isn't joy. And as God looks and he peers through the eyes of love and sorrow at how we change good into our own meaning and twist what he has for us into what he doesn't want for us. He wants us to realize that he wants eternity with him for us. He wants us to know his goodness, not a feeling, but a reality. He considers 
He understands our hearts because they're hearts that he fashioned. They're hearts that he formed in the wombs of our mothers. He knows why we seek goodness, why we seek to define goodness. But the whole time he's defined it for us already. He is good. He is the answer to our heart's desire. And the psalm says that no king, no person will ever be fulfilled by a host. What it's saying is no government will ever be good enough to fill the hole in our lives. No institution will ever be enough. No club, no peer group will ever satisfy the way that God does. We'll soon be disenfranchised with a group, government, or peers when we allow our joy and our definition of goodness to hinge on those same external influences. But when we ground ourselves in the joy, definition, and worth we find in being a child of God, politicians can never rob us of that joy. Government can never rob us of that joy. Give government your taxes but don't give them power over your joy. This concept is wrapped up in Christ's statement to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but to God what is God's. Give your government your reasonable obedience, but give God your heart and let him be the source of your joy and definition for goodness. It goes on in all the exercise, all the fitness trends, all the fad diets, they will never satisfy us. A healthy lifestyle should be a byproduct of the joy we find in the Lord, the fulfillment we have in Him, the fruit of a desire to give Him glory. What it shouldn't be is a source of fulfillment for us or something that we find glory in. A healthy lifestyle based on whether or not we feel good about it is is quickly abandoned when we no longer feel good about it. But the same lifestyle pursued to God's glory becomes something that can be maintained because it's a product of our joy, not the source of it. He goes on to speak about how material possessions can make you feel safe and accomplished. You know, a house can make you feel at home, but things are not what secures our eternity. All of our possessions are just temporary sources of joy. If we allow them to dictate our joy, then losing them will also cause us to lose our joy. Our things can't deliver us from an eternity without Christ. And our things cannot make an eternity with Christ better. Everything we own will one day be someone's garbage or clutter in one of our descendants' households. Lasting value can only be placed on how we glorified God in this life. Did we speak of him to our family? And more than a knickknack left to them for a shelf, did we leave a legacy of the gospel of the joy found in serving the God who created all things? Was their salvation our priority? Did the name we leave them a family name or a new name written in glory. The eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, 
This isn't to say that he's watching us and checking up on us to see if we mess up. This is saying that he watches over us. He takes care of us. He sees when we struggle, when we have need. He sees when we need strength in a situation and is ready to help when we call on his name. When we wait on his timing, his presence is our shield and his joy is our reward. And when we abide in his presence, he's ever near to us, even when we don't perceive it. Our hearts should rejoice only in him because we have trusted in his holy name. It's in his holy name and the joy of salvation that we can find joy and be vocal about that joy. As we look around and see so many things that people put their hope in, our response should be Peter's response in John 6, 68, when he says to Christ's question of whether they will leave him as other followers had. Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Thanks for walking with me a little while as we read the word together. Won't you join me again next week? And we'll walk just a little further. If you like the podcast, go ahead and hit that follow button. If you have any questions about salvation or general podcast questions, uh, reach out to us via email at podcast at lakeworthbaptist.org. Go ahead and follow us on Instagram and Facebook by looking for LWBC underscore publications.